And welcome to Wednesday night. We're glad you are here. We are in 1 John. God is light. We are looking at verses 5 through 7. We may go up to verse 10. We'll see how we're doing with time. But what I'd like to do is read the whole chapter, which is only 10 verses. So would you stand for the reading of God's word if you're physically able to stand? Welcome to those of you who've joined us via live stream. Uh, 1 John, a little bit before the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Verse 1 reads, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled, concerning the word of life. 1 John 1, 2. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy or your joy may be made complete. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say, verse 8, that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Father, tonight as we get the word of God into us. We want to be, have it said of us that your word lives in us because you live in us and that your word is a lamp to our feet and light to our path. So please bless the time together. Lead it by your Holy Spirit for your divine purposes and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. God is light. We're picking up the text in verse five tonight, but let me just give you some big sweeping things. First, There are four claims, four uh, claims and four ways to know whether you're a Christian in 1 John. And of course, some of these verses kind of unnerve some people. So let me just give you the sweeping things that you can write down if you haven't written them down already. Four claims. Notice in verse 6 of chapter 1, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness. Look at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves. Look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And then look at 2, 4. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Isn't it amazing how many times the apostle of love calls people, you a liar? (laughs) Come on. So maybe uh, he fits more the bill of a son of thunder than the apostle of love, amen? Because he is calling people out. And he's saying, look, these are claims that people make, but if you make a claim and don't back it up, you're a liar. Now here are the things that we could say are four tests that we know we're a Christian. Look at verse three of chapter two. And I would encourage you to write these down. By this we know that we have come to know him if we what? If we keep his commandments. 
That's two, three. And then look at verse five. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Now skip over to chapter three. Look at verse 14 for a moment. 314. Another we know. We know that we have passed out of death into life. That is, we have salvation. Because we what? We love the brethren. We love God's people. Who, he who does not love abides, and that's going to be a key word for 1 John, in death. He doesn't have the life of God. Here's a third we know. It's in 324. Skip down to the very end of the chapter. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And we know, uh, we know by this that he abides in us. What's the test? By the Spirit, 324, whom he has given us. Same thing in 413. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the pledge, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And finally, all the way to chapter 5, look at verse 13. 513 says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. So four claims, uh, someone may say this, someone may say that, but if their life doesn't back it up, then John will call them out as really being deceived or being a liar. And yet there are four assurances in 1 John. We know, we know by um, trusting in Christ and keeping his commandments and loving and having the spirit and so forth. And so this, these are the big sweeping ideas of the book. And this is the message back in chapter one, verse five, uh, that John is gonna share with us. The message there is angelia. This is the announcement. This is the precept we have heard from him. First John 1, 5. This is the opening verse for tonight. And we announce it to you. We got this message from him, and he specifically means Jesus, and we're announcing it to you. That God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, John's goal is stated in the first, uh, in the verses three and four of the opening chapter. Take a look. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you also, keyword, may have fellowship with us. And fellowship is the idea of knowing God and communing with him. And indeed, our fellowship, I think he's speaking now for the apostles, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and implied, of course, is the Holy Spirit. And these things we write so that our joy, if you have a New King James, it says, so your joy may be made complete. Now, John is writing to a group of early believers, and I'm gonna make the case in a moment that this letter is written to Christians and not non-Christians. And some people have argued that 1 John is written to non-Christians, and specifically the opening chapter, because there's some unnerving language, and we'll get into that in a moment, about confession of sin and cleansing and the like. And some people have said, and there have been you know, pretty well-known radio programs that have been on the air for years, and say this kind of thing, that once you become a Christian, you don't have to confess sin any longer. And, and the reason they, they would say that is because positionally, when you receive Jesus Christ and you're born again, 
He forgives you, right? You, ha- you are justified. We, we learn about justification in the book of Romans, and we have the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. So what would the purpose be for confessing my sin if I'm born again, someone might argue? What's the purpose of confession? And is confession to be forgiven over and over and over again so that I'm in right standing with God at one moment and out of right standing with God in another moment? And what does that mean exactly? Have I lost my salvation and then gotten it back the moment I confess? That's what some people wrestle with. Others would argue that what we're talking about here is not a loss of salvation, but a loss of fellowship or intimacy with God. Let me give you an example or an analogy. For those of you who are married, your marriage is not dependent upon how much communication you've had in a given day with your spouse. Whether you exchanged positive or negative words with them, you're married and your marriage is a covenant. But the closeness of your relationship, let's call it your fellowship or intimacy, is dependent upon how close you choose to be. And so one argument we could make here is that the restoration is back to close fellowship. And of course, this is an in-house debate, and there are good people who take different positions on this. But clearly, this, is, this letter is written to believers. Let me just give you an example. Uh, skip over to chapter two, for example, and look at verse one. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Who's that written to, brothers and sisters? That's written to believers, right? Okay, go down to verse um, seven. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away. We'll come back to that. And the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Uh, The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Skip down to verse 12. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. 14, I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who's been from the beginning, etc., etc. Here's my point. The audience is obviously believing Christians, or at least professing Christians. So while some might try to say that 1 John chapter 1 is written to non-believers and thus... It helps them make sense a little bit more of the language about walking in the light and so forth. I think we'll be able to dig this out in a satisfactory way and see what God is actually saying to us. But we start with the message, and the message is clearly this. This is the starting point, verse 5, chapter 1. God is light. This is a definition of God. God is light. Now, later in the book, John will say God is love. But he starts off with saying God is light. What does that mean? I think if you read commentaries on the book of 1 John, what you'll discover is that most scholars would equate light with holiness. And it is true that when God is acclaimed and when we get a behind-the-scenes view of heaven in Isaiah chapter 6, the angels 
in antiphonal praise. That means they go back and forth, never cease to say day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That same scene, we believe, is repeated in Revelation 4, if you're taking notes, verse 8. And once again, the angels are pictured as saying to God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so light is a good uh, synonym, if you will, for the holiness of God. God is light. And let me just walk this out for a moment to make the point. And in him is no darkness at all. So you can see the holiness of God is really the aim of John in verse 5. In God, there is no darkness at all. 1 Timothy 6 says, God dwells in unapproachable light. Hebrews 12, 29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. Holy is the Lord. The Lord in the burning bush, the bush burned but was not consumed. He says to Moses, Take off your sandals. You are standing on holy ground. Holy, holy, holy. Moses wouldn't even look. Right? He was afraid to look at God. And this is the proper starting point for inviting people into fellowship. And here's why. Because we must understand the holiness of God to understand the gospel of God. Amen? What is the gospel? That Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Jesus, if I can put it this way, had to die for our sins because God is holy. So John will talk about the fact that God is love, but first he's going to talk about that God is light. God is holy. Thus, that's why we need the propitiation, which we'll learn about in chapter two, that is the uh, sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. And when we come into this fellowship, verse four, chapter one, a little bit of review, the goal is that we would find in this relationship a fullness of joy. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. That's the New Living Translation. The New King James says, these things we write to you that our joy or your joy may be made full. Now I want you to hold your place in 1 John and go all the way to the book of Psalms, chapter 16. This is a Psalm of David, and we're talking about the joy that we're being invited into when we come into a relationship with God. The book of Psalms, Psalm 16. This is a mictum of David, and we're gonna go to the final verse, and uh, this is also a messianic psalm, but let me just share this with you and give you a moment to get there. Psalm 16, verse 11, the final verse. The Bible describes a relationship with the Lord as something that will produce joy in your life. But not only that, read Psalm 1611 with me. It says, Thou will make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is what? Fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever. It is amazing to read the fact or to read this and and Realize it for ourselves that in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. What is the world seeking for? Turn back to 1 John. Well, we would say that a lot of people who don't come to Jesus say they want to enjoy their lives. They may say something like this. 
on my deathbed, maybe I'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord so I can go to heaven. But right now, I want to do what I want to do. And essentially what they're saying is, I want pleasures, pleasures, pleasures. And when they pursue pleasure, they actually end up in a position where they're the walking dead. Because in the pursuit of pleasure without God, you find an ongoing rampant emptiness. Just read, if you, if you can stomach it, pick up one of those celebrity magazines and see how they're doing in their relationships. See how they're doing in terms of their mental health. See how they're doing, how good they look when they're on vacation and they don't have makeup on. <laughs> and all kinds of people said, yikes. Anyway, and of course, they don't take always flattering pictures of these folks. We get it. That must be a tough way to live. But, you know, everybody is saying, I want this. I want to enjoy this or that. But the Bible says that there is a fullness of joy in knowing the Lord in his presence. And there are pleasures at his right hand forevermore. Jesus in the upper room discourse, John 15, 11 and 12 said, these things I've spoken to you. And he spoke about love and he spoke about abiding in him in John 15, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. When David had sinned with Bathsheba and he wrote Psalm 51 in the wake of that sin, he said these words, Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. The same man that wrote Psalm 16 that said, In God's presence there are pleasures at his right hand forevermore. Joy. Now he says, Don't cast me away. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me, remember the, the words, brethren, the joy of my salvation. That's what David had lost in what many scholars believe was almost a year of covering up his sin with Bathsheba and causing Uriah to be killed. He lost the joy of his salvation. It's not like, I don't, I don't think that we could argue that David didn't know God anymore, but he was in cover-up mode. He, was, he had sinned against God and he was faking it. He was trying to walk in darkness and still say he was in the light. And that just doesn't work. And for anybody who's tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we just can't do it. Bless the Lord, O my soul, Psalm 104, 1 and 2. O Lord, my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with splendor and majesty. Listen to this. Covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. God is light. In the beginning, the first thing God said was, let there be light. And there was light. And light is a mystery even to scientists. They don't quite know how to explain the different aspects of light itself because light doesn't just come from the sun. Light came before there was an actual sun made. And God is light. And in the future Jerusalem, of course, we know there will be no need of the light of the sun because the Lamb, God will be its light and the Lamb within it. And so what we have is a message, verse 5, 1 John 1, that the apostles want to share with these early believers. The light metaphor permeates the gospel of John, which was also penned by 
the same author. And I'm gonna take you there just for a moment so you can see the connection. So the Gospel of John now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chapter one. Same author wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation. He opens his Gospel, John chapter one, with light metaphors. And let's take a look at a few of them. After describing Jesus as the word and the creator, he says of Jesus in him, John 1, 4, was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light, first, uh, sorry, John 1, 5, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Skip down to verse uh, 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Jesus came into the world to save. In John 8, 12, flip over to John chapter 8, verse 12. He made this statement. John 8, 12. He says, again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And then skip over to John 12, verses 35 and 36. As you can see, similar themes from John's gospel to 1 John. Jesus therefore said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you, 1235. Walk while you have the light, that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, in order that you may become sons of light. Back to 1 John. And so Jesus is the light of God come into the world. God is light. Jesus is the light. And he was the, if you will, the glory of God coming into the world in a body. And they, the disciples, John himself says, we beheld that glory. We saw that light if I can put it that way. We beheld him. We touched him. We heard him. We uh, saw him. All of those things that we learned last week. Now, what does it mean that God is light? It means he's holy, but it also includes ideas of beauty and truth. This is who God is. This is the starting point. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, the danger with starting with an undefined God is love message is that it opens the door to something that has permeated our culture. Now quoting Jones. We have had the flabby sentimental notions of God as a God of love, always smiling upon us. And then when wars and calamities or viruses, I'll add, come, we are baffled and we turn our backs on religion. This is what millions have been doing, says Jones. And the trouble has actually been due to the fact that they did not start the way the scriptures start, with the holiness of God. God is utter, absolute righteousness and justice. Holiness without which no man will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29. Sharing the light that is unapproachable, everlasting, eternal, in the brightness and the perfection of his absolute qualities. Light, holiness, Utter, absolute holiness and purity. This is confirmed by part B of verse 5, says Jones. In him there is no darkness at all. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. Thou canst not look on wickedness with favor. Habakkuk 1.13. God is pure light, and he is holy. And, that, and he says over and over again, in the Old Testament, I will be treated as holy. 
Jesus put it this way. The lamp of the body is the eye. If the, therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. Matthew 6, through 24. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. He, either, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. I've watched the movie Pale Rider many times. Any, every, anybody ever seen the movie Pale Rider? Clint Eastwood. It's a really good movie. And Clint actually quotes that idea as a man trying to rip off these little uh, guys who, uh, whatever they're called. Anyway, never mind. Basically, he tries to buy Clint Eastwood off. And he, and Clint says, you cannot serve God and mammon. This will never work. I'm not gonna buy your bribe. The rest of the movie is a great Western where ultimately uh, good triumphs over evil. I recommend it to you, Pale Rider. <laughs> Didn't plan to say that, but here we go. If we say that we have fellowship with him, God is light in him, there's no darkness at all, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. Now, if we make a claim that we have this fellowship that John's been talking about, but we actually walk in darkness. Let me explain. The word walk is a Greek word that simply means to live in darkness. So this is not that you stumble every now and then. This is not a, a, a genuine wrestling with the world, the flesh, and the enemy. We all have got that. And we all genuinely struggle with sin and temptation and all of that. But John is talking about a person who claims to know God, verse 6, and yet is consistently, that's the word walk, consistently living in darkness. What would it mean for a person to live in darkness? Well, if God is light and in him is purity, beauty, holiness, truth, all of those things, his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, what would darkness then be? Darkness would be evil. It would be everything that is opposite of God. In fact, Satan is called the prince of darkness. And so a person who makes a claim to be a Christian and yet is walking in darkness, John says, you're a liar. And that is a radical statement, but he's saying that person doesn't practice the truth. Now, with that in mind, just listen to these words because I think you're familiar with them. John 3, 19 through 21. Jesus is likely the one speaking. This is the judgment that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth, John 3.21, comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Let me give you a key concept here that I, I think is really important. The person who is walking in the light is authentic and is not hiding in the shadows, but their life is basically in the light of God and they're willing to take everything that goes with that, the good, the bad, and the ugly. They're not hiding in the shadows. They're not trying to fake who they are or what level they've arrived in terms of their Christian, uh, you know, attainments, so to speak, 
Remember, I introduced to you last week the idea behind the false teaching of 1 John was a Gnostic gospel. And the Gnostics said that they had embraced a secret knowledge that put them above other so-called normal Christians and that they were the elite class, the special privileged class. And this is probably who is being addressed here. And they, one version of Gnosticism said, all matter is evil, so you can do whatever you want with your body, and your spirit is still right with God. And we dug that out last week. And I think that's the direct attack that John is making here. A person who claims to have fellowship with God, verse 6, and yet is walking in darkness consistently cannot be in fellowship with God because in God there is no darkness at all. You won't find him in the darkness. So that if someone is in open, unrepentant, rebellious sin to God without conviction, without repentance, they ain't walking with God. Any claim that they make to know God, to fellowship with God, John would say, how do you like this for a politically correct language? You're a liar. Now, I know we hesitate to say that. John's saying that on the authority of Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit. But we would hesitate to say that to someone, right? To say to someone, you're a liar. But the truth of the matter is that that's what John is saying. And he's not talking about a person in a genuine struggle with sin and temptation. Please don't think that. He's talking about a phony. He's talking about someone claiming to be in the light, maybe even in the special privileged light, and yet they actually walk in darkness. And that person is a liar. Abraham Lincoln said, if a man is going to be a liar, he had better have a good memory. Close quote. You know, when someone lives a lie, they end up spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to cover up their darkness. Because essentially, if you're living a lie to this extreme, your whole life has to be a cover-up. Think back to David and his year cover-up with the sin with Bathsheba. That was hard enough on him. He wrote Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 in that year. And he said, man, my life, I was dried up. The heavy hand of God was on me because David knew God. Penning the sweet psalms of Israel, you know, playing the uh, ancient guitar before Saul, a man after God's own heart. Now in darkness, he had to be miserable. And this, this is one of the secret, I'll let you in on a little secret. You ready? If you're a Christian, you are not going to be able to live in darkness for long. It just don't work. You're not going to be content there because that's not the kingdom that you belong to. But David certainly tried and others have tried as well. And so what do we do? Well, if we walk in the light seven as he himself is in the light, that's where God is. And we're, it doesn't say walk according to the light. It just says in the light. We have fellowship with one another. That could point to fellowship first and foremost with God and you and fellowship with the community of those who are saints in the light. And here's what happens. And the blood of Jesus, his son, this is in a continual present, present tense in the original language, 
so that it would read, and the blood of Jesus, his son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, I don't think this is about perfection, brethren. I think this is about pressing into God. I think this is about transparency. Do you know that if, you're, if a person that you know is part of a cult where they try to be religious void of the power of the Holy Spirit, it is a miserable existence. I've traveled a few times to Utah. I've talked to people who are part of the Mormon church. And I'm not trying to beat up on the Mormon church, but I'll just say that there's some wonderful people who are trying to be religious, but they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. And some of them have told me that they know it and that they just remain in the church because of the pressure of their family. Literally told me that at a yogurt shop. I don't know how I ended up at a frozen yogurt shop, but anyway. And one lady looked me in the eye and said, I don't want to go to that church, but if I ever tried to go somewhere else, they would, they would not get off my back. They would pressure me, so I'd just go to satisfy them. It's got to be the most difficult thing in the world, and not just in the Mormon church, but in Christian churches all around the world to make a profession without the power, to claim that you walk in the light, but you're actually living a life of darkness. That, that can't be a fun existence, and that's not what God wants for you. You might be asking, well, how do I know that I'm walking in the light? We touched on these verses, but skip over to 1 John 2, 9 through 11. Let me just show you something that John says. He says, the one, two, nine, who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, this is the one place I can tell you after studying this for quite some time that there's a definitive example of what it means to walk in darkness. And I'll give you a part of what I think is going on here. I think the elite Gnostic class who believe that they were in a special category all of, uh, of themselves looked at normal Christians with, maybe they despised them, they hated them, they looked down at other regular Christians as if they were better. They were the elite. Maybe they even despised them. And you say, Pastor Michael, does that happen in the church? Just stick around long enough. You'll meet at my ordination service. These words will go with me to glory. An old seasoned administrative uh, pastor. He was like a he, he was an assistant pastor, great with people, hospital visits, all that stuff. He said, he said, Michael, over the next several years, you are gonna meet people you cannot imagine. <laughs> and that has been fulfilled <laughs> over and over and over again. Now, none of the wonderful people in this room am I <laughs> referring to, but I'm talking about I have met some interesting people People who have walked into my office with messages for me and people who have made claims that, you know, they speak 
with the authority and this is what they say. And, and it's like, wow. And here's the point. If we are going to look down on others and actually hate people who are God's family, we're in trouble, we're in darkness. And then 314 is something I showed you earlier. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love God's people. He who does not love abides in death. Another way to say that is he's in the darkness. So this is the test. And so if we walk in the light, 1-7, as God himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. See, all we gotta do is stay in the light. <laughs> Second Corinthians 6, 14 and 15 says, don't be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15. Now certainly we, we want to have friendships with all kinds of people. And we want to win people to the Lord. Here the idea is don't be bound together. And another way to say it is don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And the images of an ancient yoke where two oxen were pulling. And the image has been used before that if the dead oxen you know, is pulling in one direction, it's probably gonna pull the other one down. It's not f talking about friendships. It's talking about partnerships, which would include marriage. That's why we will we'll tell somebody who comes to us, don't marry an unbeliever. Well, I'm gonna win them to Christ. Are you? I sure hope you could, but what if you don't? I could tell you about the pain of people who are married to unbelievers today and are going two different directions. And sometimes that happened because someone got married and they, be, you know, they were two unbelievers and they became a Christian and the spouse did not. But think about this example. How about a person who's in a marriage right now where the spouse is in darkness? Maybe they've walked away from the Lord and the other spouse is walking in the light. How are they gonna have fellowship together? It's, it's a tough spot to be in. And so if we are in the light, and that's all we gotta be is just pressing into God, abiding, walking with him, we have that constant flow cleansing us from all sin. That's the beauty of the picture. It, his blood keeps on cleansing us from all sin. And we praise God for that. But if we say, verse eight, that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now here's another second false claim. The first one was we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness. Now here's a claim that we have no sin or we're self-deceived and the truth is not in us. Would a Christian ever say, I have no sin. No, don't sin anymore. Now if you say that, I'm gonna back away from you just in case lightning strikes around you. Now, a Christian is trying not to sin, but if we would ever make a declaration that we have no sin, oh, no, I, I don't have issues with sin anymore. <laughs> you in trouble. And the truth is not in you. Now, John doesn't want us to practice sin. Look at 2.1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. 
But notice he's a realist. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation. That means the appeasement, the satisfaction of God's holiness for our sins. And not for ours alone, or ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Look, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to stumble at times. A Christian is never going to be sinless this side of heaven. But hopefully we're going to sin less. A Christian is never going to be sinless, but hopefully you are sinning less. I mean, a lot of you, I've talked to you about just how the Lord's changed your language since becoming a Christian, amen? Now, I know your tongues are not fully sanctified, (laughs) right? But you probably are speaking differently than you did years ago. And your actions and other things in your life, you're not gonna be sinless, but you're gonna sin less. Here's another insight. Christians sin, but when we sin, we repent. Christians sin, but when we sin, we repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to walk away from that. It means to turn around and stop doing it. It's not justification of that thing. It's, no, I don't wanna do that. And I'm sorry when I do that. And I could talk to you for the next two hours about things that we could all say, you know, regrets we have with things that we've said in a moment of an argument, regrets that we've had in a moment where we didn't expect to do something dumb, but maybe we stumbled or we were blindsided by something or a a moment of time where we were backed into a corner and we lied, you know, maybe our boss confronted us and in the moment we just lied and then we regretted it. Or, or somebody said something and we responded in the flesh and then we reg- regretted it. Look, that happens all the time to believers. And apparently this Gnostic group was saying that they had gotten to a point where sin was not even an issue for them anymore. Why bother confessing sin when you don't commit sin? <laughs> and all I'd say is if someone has gotten to that point, you're in trouble. You see, if we confess our sins nine He is faithful and righteous. If you have a New King James, I think it says just. To forgive us our sins and cleanse us. The Greek word here, katharizo, is to purge us or clean us from all unrighteousness. The word confess is homologeo in Greek. If you're interested, H-O-M-O-L-O-G-E-E-O. Homologeo. To confess your sin is to agree with God, literally to say the same thing that he says about your sin. Let me give you an example. The word of God is our authority, right? So let's say, let's say that somebody says, uh, no, I, I don't think that that's a sin. And you as a biblically informed Christian might say to somebody, maybe it's a friend who claims to be a Christian. Let's just say that they're living with their boyfriend and they're engaged in what goes with that. And you say to them, you need to be married. You're living in sin. And they say, I don't think I am. (laughs) What do you do with that one? What would be the test as to whether or not they were actually in sin? Well, the test would be homologeo, whether they agree with God about what God calls sin. Do you know that we are saturated today with the way the culture is moving in the United States where we, we can't 
call these things out. At least we're not allowed to in some people's minds. Because if we call out certain sins that God has defined as sin, what we are saying is this is what the word of God says. Amen? If someone says to you, that's just your opinion, be quick to correct that. If you're quoting scripture, say, that's not my opinion. That's what the Bible says. So this is, this is where we're at. So if someone says, no, I don't think that's a sin. I don't agree. Then I would say to someone, then your argument is not with me. It's with God. I'll give you an example. I shared the gospel with a person and I said, Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. And no one's coming to the Father except through him, John 14, 6. And the person said to me, that's just your opinion. I said, no, it's not. That's what Jesus said. So with all due respect, sir or ma'am, your argument is with Jesus, not with me. And when you confess your sin, you are agreeing with God. And here's the guarantee that God makes. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us If we confess our sins, we just simply agree with him. Not only will he forgive us, he will cleanse us, notice, from all unrighteousness. Now, do we need forgiveness as new covenant Christians? What does this mean? This is where people wrestle. Let me just say this to you. I believe John is addressing a specific kind of um, prideful, arrogant, Gnostic attitude sin. This is not a person genuinely struggling with sin. I know I talk to people and people wrestle with, you know, have I lost my salvation or can you lose your salvation? I don't think that's what John is after here. I think John is confronting a specific prideful attitude that's permeating in the early Gnostic, at least forms of the Gnostic heresy. Everybody with me? I don't think this is a person who's genuinely wanting to please God but finds a struggle with a besetting sin. I don't think that's the deal. And I think you should take this as a wonderful promise instead of a negative. Look at verse 9 again. If you simply agree with God that your sin is sin, he promises you, based upon his faithfulness and righteousness, doesn't say his compassion, because his righteousness, his holiness, is what caused Jesus to have to go to the cross. This is a positive. He is faithful and righteous to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So some of us, this is kind of how it works sometimes. We say, oh, Lord, are you sick of hearing me confess this sin? Because this is the 27th time today. <laughs> no, I hope you're not at that point, right? This is the 27th time this month. No, I hope you're not. The 20. you get it. Hopefully you don't keep hitting your head on the same wall. But if you do and you confess it, he promises to forgive you and cleanse you. The only thing that would disqualify you from that is if you won't confess it and won't agree with him. Amen? That's the only thing that disqualifies you from the promise of 1 John 1, 9. No, I don't agree. No, I won't confess it. No, not confessing it anymore. Well, then you got problems. But if you get into the light where God is and you confess your sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive you your sins and cleanse you. A double blessing. Forgive and cleanse from all 
your unrighteousness. Praise God. That's the promise. The blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing us from all sin. And finally, verse 10, if we say, another claim that we have not sinned, some believe that this is a disclaiming of the sin nature, we make him a liar. We're calling God a liar if we say that we don't have an issue with sin. And his word is not in us. Jesus said to some of the religious leaders, you do not have his word abiding in you, John 5, 38. In John 8, 37, he said, I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. If you welcome God's word, and that's why you guys are here on a Wednesday night or you're watching right now. If you welcome God's word into your life, you want it to have a place in your life, amen? amen. And that's why you're here. And, and I know that sometimes it, it's not comfortable to hear the, the word of God and to wrestle with its implications in your life. But the more you do, the more it settles in your soul and the more you have the blessing of forgiveness. Proverbs 28, 13, 14 says, he who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Proverbs 28, 13, and 14. Certainly Paul argues that we have a sin nature. Sin is in our members and we struggle with it. It rears its ugly head. We have a, a, a different law in our members and we, we gravitate sometimes towards sin. We're prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. And yet at the same time, we know that every time we press into him, every time we're transparent about our sin, every time we say, Lord, have mercy on me. He does. He's faithful and righteous to forgive you and cleanse you every single time. In fact, the blood of Jesus keeps on washing me from all sin. I want to take you to Luke and we're done. Luke 18. Let's turn over there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke 18. So Jesus tells a parable here. And it's going to be familiar to you, but I think it's a great way to end. Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus is talking about prayer and not to give up in praying, even when times get tough. And he says these words. He told this parable, Luke 18, 9, to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Sounds a lot like the Gnostic or early Gnostic heresy. Sounds a lot like some of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, Luke 18.10, the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, by contrast, standing some distance away, was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. But he was beating his breast, and he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. 
Father, thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you that the blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing us from all sin. Thank you that we are in the light. And whenever we feel like darkness is invading, we can simply turn and go to the light and you will be found. You will not turn away anyone who genuinely seeks you. No matter how desperate, no matter how ugly things get, you say, anyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast them away. You will embrace them just like the prodigal prodigal's father embraced his son. He said, I'm unwilling to be called your son. I've sinned against you and against heaven and in your sight. But the father, he, he was rejoicing. He was joyous. There was a party. And Jesus, you said it will be just that same way. When one sinner comes to repentance, heaven will rejoice just in that same way. Is that only the unbeliever or is that a wayward Christian? Is that a prodigal? Is that a person who walked in the light for a time but ended up in the darkness? Lord, you know, but thank you that that gives us a great uh, vision of your heart, that you have a heart for wandering sheep and you just say, come to the light and I'll forgive you, cleanse you and you can start. You can start over. You can start anew. If you're not sure you're a Christian tonight, you can start over right now by confessing Jesus as your Lord and Savior, believing that he died for you on the cross, repenting of your sin, believing in his resurrection, and saying, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. Please forgive me. Please cleanse me. Please apply your sacrifice to my life. And if you've been wandering and maybe you found yourself in some darkness, this would be a wonderful time to come back to the light, to come back home in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Would you stand?